Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away, worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information. Good morning. Welcome to our show, number 515. Let's start off this morning by trying to answer this provocative question. Is there anything good about early March? The envelope, please. Where's my envelope? Okay, it says here, the answer is yes, and here's why. Early March is a perfect time to look at birds and introduce new people to birds. Now, some folks say that spring migration, say in early May, is the ideal time, but maybe not. Birds in spring migration certainly are wonderful to see and hear in full color and song, but the experience can be a little overwhelming, a veritable bird overload Too much in the way of birds. I guess any new experience can actually discourage people. So much to absorb. So that makes the present time maybe ideal for a modest and digestible introduction to birds. Winter birds are stable, relatively limited, and often wonderfully accessible. Take wintering waterfowl or a popular staked-out but non-harassed snowy owl, for example. And if you're an experienced birder, It's the perfect time to bring along a neighbor or friend who may be curious because of a backyard feeder for a short and simple birding trip. Or if you're the new birder, take yourself out. Chances are you'll see something new and exciting every time. Uh, On the other hand, here's... Well, from our corner office there overlooking Quincy Bay, we have no wintering ducks, no alcids, nor anything else in view out on the harbor. We have a few land birds like American robins, European starlings, and American crows. And if we could see around the corners, we might even spot some of the cedar and bohemian waxwings that have been seen in the neighborhood this week. But in our spotting scope, focused on our little slice of Quincy Bay, we see snow. Lots and lots of snow. Where we used to see docks in the marina, we now see what appears to be just a big white field stretching as far as the eye can see, which often isn't very far at all lately in the gray mist of the harbor. Beyond, it's a view interrupted only by the tall poles poking up from the sides and corners of those boat docks, docks that are now almost invisible beneath layers and layers of snow. And that, I'm afraid, is our current... So how are birds faring in what's turned into a snowpocalypse winter here in the Northeast and in other parts of the country as well? Well, we learned last week about a Wisconsin study that showed that black-capped chickadees had a normal winter survival rate of only 37% uh, 37 when no bird feeders were available, but a rate of survival almost double that when stocked feeders were available. However, some birds can't take advantage of those uh, bird feeders uh, like this one. 
scary sounding but beautiful bird, the barn owl, a bird that has suffered serious declines in recent years and really has the deck stacked against it when snow covers the ground and prey becomes hard to find. On the Massachusetts island of Martha's Vineyard, naturalist Gus Ben David told the Vineyard Gazette that there were between 25 and 35 breeding pairs of barn owls on the vineyard before winter, but that many had already been found dead, and he expects a barn owl mortality rate this winter of about 95%. A tough winter for people and birds. But that's enough wintry negativity because we do indeed have some signs of spring even way up here in the frigid north, for example. Great horned owls are already nesting out there in the snowy woods. Male American goldfinches are beginning to show patches of bright yellow feathers. A preview of the striking breeding colors coming soon. And... Yes, we're getting reports from all over of one of the true harbingers of spring, red-winged blackbirds. The males staking out territory in those frozen marshes out there. By the way, we got a note from Ted Osage down in Alexandria, Kentucky, not far from Cincinnati, Ohio, telling us that he received the droll Yankees feeder he won in our mystery bird contest a couple of weeks ago. And he related a little story about how folks are saving birds this winter by making sure they're getting fed, Ted says, I know we're a big bird feeding area. I stopped by Tractor Supply today in Alexandria for some bird seed, and the clerk told me they were sold out since a week ago when we got a ton of snow on Friday and Saturday. She said she was supposed to be off at 1 and stayed until 5 on Friday because they were so busy with 80% of customers buying bird seed. She said they did $18,000 worth of business that day and that bird seed accounted for most of the total. Wow. Thank you, Ted, for that story. Well, our Charlotte Wasilik has some cool bird sightings and a young birder blog report and even a suggestion for battling the winter blues. Let's head north and get the details. Alberta comes this morning's edition of Charlotte's Web Log with Charlotte Wesselick up in Alberta, Canada. Good morning, Charlotte. What's cooking? Good morning, Ray. Common Redpoles started visiting my theaters earlier this week for the first time in two years. I've been looking closely at the birds to see if any of them are hoary redpoles, but I haven't seen any just yet. This week, I also saw five horned larks near our yard. On my blog this week, I reviewed the Collins Bird Guide app, which I used on my recent trip to Europe and found very helpful. Young birder Josiah from Manitoba just saw his 200th life bird, a Eurasian tree sparrow in a yard in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You can read Josiah's post and see his photos of the Eurasian tree sparrow on his blog, birdsinyourbackyard.blogspot.ca. One way to battle the winter blues is to start making plans for spring. 
The Cornell Lab of Ornithology's Nestwatch project is gearing up, and you can help scientists collect valuable data on the successes and failures of nesting birds. You can learn how to participate and become a certified Nestwatch monitor using the website's online resources and a test at nestwatch.org. That's all for this week, Ray. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Charlotte. Hey, be sure to check out Charlotte's blog. It's a beautiful thing to see. You can find it at prairiebirder.wordpress.com. That's prairiebirder.wordpress.com. Well, still to come on our show today, the wind turbines versus birds battle continues. And we'll welcome back to Talking Birds a man who's in the middle of the fight and who'll tell us about the latest volleys being fired. In our Let's Ask Mike segment this morning, we'll try to answer a question about northern harriers, a.k.a. marsh hawks, versus giant rabbits. Hmm. Also this morning, somebody will win a fabulous feeder from Droll Yankees, just as our friend Ted recently did in our Mystery Bird Contest. And by the way, if you're listening to us on a podcast, a reminder that you can hear us live online any place on the planet. So you can get in on our Mystery Bird Contest. Just go to TalkingBirds.com for all the details on that. Easy to do, TalkingBirds.com. And up next, one bird, one tree, 50,000 holes. Let's meet today's featured feathered friend. Well, we all know that woodpeckers drill holes in trees. But 50,000 holes in one tree? Yes, there's a woodpecker in which individuals, in partnership with a few family members, will drill up to 50,000 holes in a single tree. The drilling site becomes known as a granary tree because each of those holes is used to store individual nuts. The nuts are acorns, and the bird is the acorn woodpecker. It's a bird of western forests, oak forests that is, spending many hours storing acorns in carefully tended holes in trees, as well as in telephone poles, fence posts, and even buildings. Acorns are such an important resource to the California populations that these birds may exhibit a rare behavior. They sometimes nest in the fall to take advantage of the seasonal acorn crop. But the acorn woodpecker doesn't eat only acorns, it also consumes almonds and walnuts, and in mild weather, flying insects. This distinctive-looking bird is often described as clown-faced, with its white eye surrounded by black, a mostly white face and black bill, and a big red patch on the top of the head, extending to the forehead in the male. And if you're driving around somewhere in the American Southwest, and your car unexpectedly overheats, there's just a chance that acorn woodpeckers could be the cause. They've also been known to drill holes in automobile radiators. The acorn woodpecker, Melanerpes formicivorus. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. Hey, by the way, you can see a picture of the acorn woodpecker right now on our Talking Birds Facebook page. Thanks for being with us. Our show number 515. Hope you'll follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Talking Birds. The American Bird Conservancy has filed a formal petition with the U.S. Department of the Interior calling for the agency to establish new regulations regarding the impact of wind energy projects on migratory birds. 
Dr. Michael Hutchins is the national coordinator of ABC's Bird Smart Wind Energy Campaign. And we're happy to welcome him back to Talking Birds this morning. Good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning, Ray. Great to have you uh, back again and hear you on Talking Birds. What made ABC decide to file this petition? Well, this is the second time we filed the petition. The first time was in December 2012, and when we filed then, Fish and Wildlife Service rejected it, stating that they wanted to see how their voluntary permitting guidelines for wind energy development would work before mm -hmm. considering other approaches. Mm -hmm. And we filed again for two reasons. Uh, first, there's been plenty of time to assess the efficacy of the voluntary guidelines, and second, we had uh, much more additional information to add to the petition, including information on similar regulatory efforts, such as the recent restrictions on bird kill for long-line fisheries. Mm. Well, how would how the successful implementation of these regulations uh, you propose protect birds? Well, the main thing that it would do is to give Fish and Wildlife Service a process to set limits on the number of migratory birds taken by a wide range of activities, uh, including wind and solar energy development. Right now, uh, as you probably know, the Migratory Bird Protection Act is not being enforced with regularity. And there's much confusion and uncertainty even among industry on how uh, the act will be implemented. Uh, under the current law, it's illegal to purposely kill even one migratory bird, and there's no provision for incidental take permits as there is under the Endangered Species Act and the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. A permitting process would allow Fish and Wildlife Service to set science-based limits on the number of migratory birds that can be taken. In fact, as you probably know, you know Fish and Wildlife Service already does this through its duck stamp licensing mm -hmm. program. Uh, right now, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service allows hunters to take limited numbers of selected migratory birds, mm -hmm. but it's highly regulated and strict limits are imposed. So in general, uh, Michael, are you in favor of continued wind power development as uh, part of a broader solution to the effects of climate change? And, and can turbines and birds coexist? Well, those are uh, two very important questions. But, yeah, uh, ABC supports wind energy development to address climate change. But improved regulation of the industry is sorely needed. Uh, ABC supports what we call bird smart wind energy, and the most important component of this is proper siting. We don't think that wind energy projects should be going up in sensitive areas for birds or bats, such as major migratory routes, uh, breeding areas, or sensitive habitats such as wetlands. Unfortunately, wind turbines are going up everywhere, mm. even in the most sensitive areas for birds. And this calls into serious question the efficacy of the current voluntary guidelines. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be the subject of a major Associated Press article coming out soon, and you should, uh, everybody should watch for that. We'll, we'll look for that. Well, is it the case people often say, well, if you... You put up wind turbines, you kind of want to put them in the same place that bird migration takes place because of the wind patterns. Is that, is that the case? How can you deal with that? Well, in, in some cases, such as lake shores and, you know, high mountain ridges, uh, this is true, but not always. Um, as you know, ABC has developed a wind risk assessment map showing areas where wind energy should not be developed. And these include important bird areas, parks, major migratory bottlenecks, breeding areas and so forth. 
And these represent only less than 9% of the total U.S. land area. There are, you know, there are plenty of other places where wind energy can go and not be in major conflict with birds. Well, is there, is there a potential to decrease the bird kills? I mean, you can give us some stats on that, maybe, uh, the bird kills caused by wind farms, or is the best that we can hope for that the number killed won't increase? Well, um, as you probably know, there's a wide range of species known to be killed by wind energy turbines. Um, but, the, you know, the most sensitive species are probably raptors and nighttime migratory songbirds. And there have been three major peer-reviewed studies looking at bird mortality at wind farms. And the results have varied, but one study estimated that 573,000 birds were being killed annually at 2012 build-out levels. Mm -hmm. And there are vastly more wind turbines now, and tens of thousands more are planned. So ABC just completed a study using the turbine kill rates from two of these studies to predict current and future kill rates. And we combined the number of current turbines with the number of proposed turbines and estimated that 1.41 million birds will be killed annually by wind. Mm. But it could range as high as 2.2 million per year as the build-out continues. Mm -hmm. And also it's important to realize that these estimates do not include birds killed by the associated power lines and towers. Hundreds of miles of new lines are being constructed connect to connect wind and solar energy into the grid. And in 2012, uh, these were killing uh, nearly 7 million birds. And like I said, there's going to be vastly more turbines and mm -hmm. power lines and towers uh, over the next uh, decade or so. Pretty staggering statistics. So what are the chances, uh, Michael, you think that this petition will be successful? Well, I think the chances of having something happen are quite good. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has recognized the need, so we believe that uh, chances are good something's going to occur. Uh, and based on recent statements, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service is also questioning whether or not the uh, voluntary guidelines for wind energy development have been successful. Mm -hmm. So we're still hoping that uh, at some day there will be mandatory permitting guidelines to help better regulate the industry and ensure that they're cited uh, in more intelligent ways. Dr. Michael Hutchins is the National Coordinator of ABC, the American Bird Conservancy's Bird Smart Wind Energy Campaign. Michael, thank you and good luck with the petition. Thanks, Ray. Uh, much appreciated. Coming up next here on Talking Birds, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. Public ferry service to the Boston Harbor Islands has ended for the season, but you can still visit the beautiful Boston Harbor Islands peninsulas open year-round. World's End in Hingham, Deer Island in Winthrop, Webb Memorial Park in Weymouth, and Nut Island in Quincy. They're connected to the mainland and accessible by car, offering stunning views of Boston Harbor and its islands, plus birding, hiking, biking, and cross-country skiing. Enjoy your national park all year long. For more information, please visit bostonharborislands.org. Here on Talking Birds Now, a message from our friends at Ducks Unlimited. Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been a world leader in wetlands conservation, ensuring safe passage for nature's most beautiful creations, protection against flooding, and sanctuary for the human soul. If we don't want to grow old in a world without wild places, we must speak up. We must step up so that we may fill the skies for generations to come. 
Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a world leader in the study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. You're eligible on our Mystery Bird Contest if you haven't been a winner here on Talking Birds in the past six months. So listen carefully. We'll give some clues and play the sound of a bird. Please call us and tell us what it is or what you think it is or what you think it might be or take a guess at it. Because no correct answer means a drawing will determine our winner. And the number is 781-837-4900. Please call us as soon as you can. Not much time left on already on the show, as usual. 781-837-4900. Our prize is another of the new Droll Yankees feeders. The new generation 13-inch peanut feeder with green accents. Feeder tube of stainless steel wire mesh perfect for a pound of peanuts or black oil sunflower seed or other stuff it's just like the one we have in our talking birds garden but don't let that stop you from calling in be on our contest 781-837-4900 here's the sound of our mystery bird listen carefully to the next part mystery bird is a thick-bodied bird with a moderately long tail and rounded wings, feathered legs, and cryptic coloring that blends in with the forest floor. It can appear in two different forms or morphs, reddish or gray. Our mystery bird forages on the ground or in trees, eating buds and twigs, leaves and ferns, soft fruits and acorns, and a few insects. There's that good clue again. What do you think it is? 781-837-4900 is the number to call. Meanwhile, it's Harrier versus Hare. Well, Rabbit, actually. That's our Let's Ask Mike topic. Let's Ask Mike in just one minute. The Amazon's rainforest is being cut down so fast that by 2030, 55% of it could be completely wiped out. The Earth's forest can't speak up when they need help, but we can. Be the voice for those who have no voice. Visit worldwildlife.org. If we continue to consume our natural resources at the rate we do now, by 2050, it could take three Earths to meet our needs. The Earth can't speak up when it needs help, but we can. Be the voice for those who have no voice. Visit worldwildlife.org. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle, unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy, unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Here comes our feature we call Let's Ask Mike, our installment this morning. As always featuring Mike O'Connor from the Birdwatchers General Store. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Ray. I don't know if we've ever had a rabbit question or not. Certainly lots of squirrel questions, but this one says, Hi, this cold winter, I think it says I've been feeding a family of rabbits in my backyard. Today I spied a marsh hawk on my deck near the feeder. Is rabbit on his menu? The rabbit's are three times his size. Thanks, says Rick in Green Harbor, Massachusetts. Oh, my. <laughs> what? <laughs> Rick, are you using binoculars on these rabbits? They're three times as big as a marsh hawk? 
Well, yeah, maybe so, the yeah. Is, they is Green Harbor near the nuclear power plant? Is there... <laughs> <laughs> wow! Rick is exaggerating a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think he's just trying to say they're pretty big, and maybe he thinks they would be too big for that yeah. northern yeah. harrier, as they call it these days. Yeah, well, here's what's going on, um, Rick. The marsh is frozen now. The, you know, the marsh hawks, the northern harriers, as like, people seem to want to call them now, hmm. um, most of what they eat are meadow voles, and they find by flying low over the marsh, and with everything frozen in, they've got to go to Plan B. And, yeah, marsh hawks will take rabbits. I was on Nantucket once, and I came around the corner and startled one, um, you know, that just had, was chowing on a rabbit. Hmm. So it's not off their menu, absolutely not. Um, or maybe one that's eight feet tall, or however, or whatever you got going on in your backyard. There. <laughs> but um, I'm just surprised that a marsh hawk was even sitting on your back, on your uh, back uh, deck. Yeah. That certainly doesn't seem like a place that they would go. Mm. You know, they're pretty much tied to that wetlands area. Mm-hmm. But Green Harbor, I guess, probably everything's wetlands. I don't know. You know, that sounds like it's near water, but. Yeah. yeah, if it is a marsh hawk, nope, they would absolutely take a rabbit if, if if they could, especially with times being tough. No problem with that at all. So, mm-hmm. yeah, these rabbits, unless they're, you know, if they're really big, like there's some kind of domestic huge rabbit, then probably not. But, a, a, you know, eastern cottontail, absolutely. All right. Well, there you go, Rick, and uh, Mike and I will be over to see those rabbits. <laughs> we want to see what they really are. I probably can like. see them from here, the way they sound. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Okay, we'll talk to you. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Send your question into Mike as a thank you gift for sending your question. We'll send you a signed copy of Mike's book, Why Do Bluebirds Hate Me? You don't have to be able to say it to read it. Why Do Bluebirds Hate Me? It's a great book by Mike. Send your question to Ray at TalkingBirds.com. Mike will answer the question. We'll send you the book. We're back here at the Mystery Bird Contest. Try to identify this bird. our best clue right there. Our mystery bird, a thick-bodied bird with a moderately long tail and rounded wings, feathered legs, and cryptic coloring that blends in with the forest floor. It can appear in two different forms or morphs, reddish or gray. Our bird forages on the ground or in trees, eating buds and twigs, leaves and ferns, soft fruits and acorns, and a few insects, and making some pretty strange sounds. What do you think it is? 781-837-4900 is the number. And Jay is down there in probably, well, I don't know if it's snow-free or not. Let's find out. Asheville, North Carolina. Good morning, Jay. Hi. Any snow down there? Yeah, we got uh, six inches earlier. Six inches of snow in in North Carolina. That's a little bit yeah. unusual, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, is this Jay who sent us an email this morning asking about our, about our number? Uh, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Uh, it's his this is Jay's son. All right. And what's your name? Jonah. Turner. Well, Turner, thank Jonah. you. Jonah. I'm sorry. Say again. Jonah. Jonah. Sorry about yeah. that. Jonah and Turner sound almost the same <clears throat> to some of us. Well, Jonah, what do you, <laughs> what do you think the mystery bird is? A uh, roughhead grass. Uh, yeah, did you say, uh, did you say a roughed grouse? Yeah. I thought you did, yes. I picked up on that right away. Roughed grouse. Absolutely right. Nice job. Nice, uh, nice work. Did you come up with that on, on your own, Jonah? Get a little help, or how'd you do that? Yeah, um, I did. You got, you did yeah. what? <laughs> we, 
we looked in our uh, our bird field guide, and uh, I recognized the uh, call too. Okay, very good. The ruffed grouse making that drumming sound is kind of interesting because it was thought for a long time that that sound was produced by the bird's tail or wings, rather, hitting a log. But there's new research they found out that really makes that sound just by beating against the air. That kind of percussive sound that's kind of a, a trademark. Any rough grouse in your area? Uh, no, I haven't seen one yet. All right. Any doing any birding this weekend? Uh, yeah, I think so. All right. Well, uh, Jonah, thank you for calling, and congratulations. And uh, stay on the line. We'll uh, get your address, and we'll send you that beautiful uh, Drill Yankees peanut feeder. Okay, thanks. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, that was Jonah down there with his dad in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, they contacted us uh, this morning asking for the phone number to our show, and it kind of kind of worked out. A little Panama music here. We're going to Panama soon with Talking Birds. We'll be broadcasting live from the Canopy Tower on the 22nd of March. Thanks to Wilson Farm for accommodating us for our live broadcast last, last, uh, last week. And on May 24th, we'll broadcast live from L.L. Bean's flagship store up there in Freeport, Maine. And um, Jonah, call us back so we can get your address. Executive producer of Talking Birds, Mark Duffield, our engineer, Jesse Wilkins. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information.